0: Welcome to Church Paradox. It is good to be here. And fittingly, with the name that we currently have as a church, it might seem paradoxical that after that beautiful song and after that beautiful prayer, the title is When You Wish God Wasn't There. Couldn't have asked for a better paradox. And I did not request that. Although I had thought maybe I should, but I was like, no, I'll just let, I'll let circumstances play out. So what happens when God does seem so close is your breath, is your air, but you wish he wasn't there? Because what if that heaviness you're feeling, you feel like, Is directly because of God. Or rather, God isn't doing anything to help take away that heaviness. Every time you try to leave it behind, more heaviness has been given to take its place. What happens when the small struggles in life keep going and going and going? And in the beginning, you can say like Job, yes, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Yes, it's okay. Yes, I can keep going. All is good. God is good all the time. Church, all the time. But what happens when you come to that point when the good isn't coming as much as the bad And the bad is coming and coming and coming. And you're asking yourselves, is God good? Are things going as they should? Because Job faced that consequence. He went from, in chapters 1 and 2, saying we should be satisfied with what God gives. But no more than the third chapter, he says, cursed is the day I was ever born and cursed is creation may leviathan destroy it that was quite an escalation <laughs> went from we got to take the good and the bad to forget it kill everybody now i think all too often we hear that and we think to ourselves well that's just that's just the human emotions we go through scripture is just giving us a testimony about the dark times, to remind us, of course, how everything gets better. But if you've ever read the book of Job, it's not a four-chapter book. It doesn't go from chapter 3 to everything got healed. It doesn't go through Job experiencing something that he has to overcome. No, instead, you get dozens and dozens of chapters in which Job proclaims how upset he is, how wrong the universe is, how unjust God is. And yes, things are restored at the end, but I kind of doubt that either the Holy Spirit, if you affirm the inspiration of Scripture, nor the Jewish people who preserved that book as a literary work, a masterpiece, I doubt that they thought the only value was in the first two chapters and the final conclusion. The dozens of chapters where Job spills his heart out and says some of the most blasphemous, typically considered heretical statements. I mean, I could quote one, God, you are the reason the wicked prosper. If it is not you... Then who on earth could it ever be attributed to? Don't believe that's in the book of Job? Go look it up. It's not on my slides, but it's there. (laughs) Job doesn't get the credit he needs, nor the people who experience what Job experiences. People too often want to imagine that when you start feeling those senses, when you go from the extreme of we got to accept what God says to screw the world, let it burn, that somehow the dozens of chapters in Job dealing with that don't matter, and the two chapters with brief quotations of praise, that's where we've got to sit with. Now, sometimes that's because some of us have not, thank God, ever experienced that sort of level Of pain. But some of us have. Some of us are. How do you handle that? What do you do with it? Jacob's story is important in this theme because in many senses, Jacob's story is the epitome of what to do when you think God is against you. would help. So in Genesis, we have this story of Jacob running away from his family, running away from his brother, heading towards his uncle Laban. And he's doing this as it's typically told because he tricked his father into a blessing and... Stole the birthright from his, uh, his brother, and so his mother has sent him off to avoid getting killed by his brother who has a bloodlust for revenge. But that's not always the best way to frame the story because it's not technically correct that Jacob has stolen anything. Yes, he did trick his father, but he tricked his father presumably because he didn't believe his father would agree to honor the deal that his brother made. It's easy to forget that Esau did sell his birthright. There is not any gray area about the fact that Esau made that exchange. Esau does not want to honor it. Yes, he made that, but forget it. It doesn't count. And yes, Jacob is afraid that his father won't honor it, but in the end... Oftentimes in the Hebrew Bible, deceit is not necessarily always a strictly bad thing. In fact, Jacob is blessed by God for deceit only after this story, when with Laban, he makes a deal about this many kinds of animals I'll get to keep that are born this way, and how many animals that are born this way, you get that. Spots, no spots, Well, Jacob does not just allow things to go by fate. No, he turns to ancient magic, gets a stick, puts it in the water, and it tells us later that God was like, okay, I'm blessing this. I'll make it happen. (laughs) Laban would not have been happy. It would have been kind of like, what the? (laughs) What are you doing, God? You you, you just tricked me out of, you know, maybe God would be like, yeah, but look at what you did with uh, your daughters. But nonetheless... Samuel, he's told, go anoint a new prophet, uh, the new king of Israel. And Samuel goes, How can I? Saul will go kill me once I tell them that's what I'm doing. So God says, Lie. Just, Just say you're going off to do a sacrifice and worship and do all that jazz that everybody thinks I'm into. But really, secretly, you're going to anoint him as king. Just lie your pants off till you get to the house of Jesse. Right? In the Exodus. The Pharaoh says, "I want to have all the, the different, um, all the different baby boys of the Hebrew people. I want them dead." The midwives of Israel go, "We will honor your, your wishes because, you know, this is God, He's told us the truth. OK. What do they do when they're giving birth? All right, hide the boys. Nope, no pharaoh, no boys getting born here, it's amazing, they're all girls, we're having a year of girls, something's in the water, <laughs> don't know what it is, right? So deceit is not, I mean, a better one perhaps, more, more you know, in our, especially with the Barbie movie coming out and everything, the feminist we we're like, look at uh, Deborah's story in Judges 4 and 5 with Jael, right? Uh, that's deceit everywhere. Her husband is aligned with the person she's gonna murder, so not only is she not only is she deceiving the guy she's gonna kill, but on top of that, she's betraying her marriage vow, and she's not even an Israelite. It's not even, she's not even doing this on behalf, seemingly, of, of Israel's God. It's just she doesn't like this. Right? So we have this all the time. Deborah the prophetess, she praises Giles, says, You are to be blessed above all other women. Because you murdered. So The Bible is not always the case where it presents to us what we expect. So people might look at Jacob and say, oh, that was really wrong. Everything goes wrong because of that. But I don't think that's how Jacob would have viewed it. I think from Jacob's perspective, he knew or he saw that he had an opening with his brother. His brother, I can presume he thought, was not Somebody who was deserving, he thought, of this birthright and responsibility. And Jacob is known as the one who's struggling all the time from birth. He comes out of the womb, it said, holding on to his brother, right? And you can look at that and say, oh man, you know, he's always coveting or he's always got to be fighting. But another way of looking at it is he always has to struggle. He's second born. He's going to get second best, but he is not willing to settle for that. He knows he'll have to fight for everything he gets and does. So, Jacob's perspective may be that it's messy. But at the same time, as he flees, he gets this dream. He gets this amazing dream as he's in the wilderness near what's going to be called Bethel. And he gets this dream of a ladder descending He dreamed there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it, reaching to heaven, the angels of God ascending and descending. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the father, uh, the uh, God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. I am the God that your family spoke of. And so, of course, Jacob is thrilled After all that he's been through, it's like he has gone through such a horrible state. He comes to paradox and he goes, God is here. I have have found God. But what else does he say? He says, uh, God says, know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you, what does this remind you of? How many people, if you've grown up in, uh, you know, Christianity, have you heard people say, you know, you gotta, you got to claim the promises? You know, God has given you promises in Scripture, claim, believe in them, Right? They're going to they're come true. God is going to bless you. And if you watch certain television channels late at night, you hear a lot of this too. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not even know it. Middle, middle of the wilderness. He's like, wow, God is here. I should build something here to commemorate this. this is, there's a ladder here. It's invisible. This is incredible. The Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. God is here, and he's excited for it. Because after everything he's gone through, so far, at least what he thinks he's gone through so far, he hasn't met Laban yet. He's like, yes, God is with me. I am good to go. God is in this place. I did not know it, and boy, am I glad to know it. He's happy here. But should he be? Should he be happy? Well, Jacob is no fool. Jacob is, and I'm not saying that the other characters in the Bible are fools. I'm not contrasting here. But Jacob, he's gone through a lot of fill in the blank already at this point in the story. He knows he has to struggle for things. So I think he knows that big promises, they're kind of hard to believe. Too good to be true. Where's the fine print? So what does he do? He does something that I've never seen anyone really else in the Bible quite do. So as he is uh, making his return vow to God, Jacob says, if God will be with me. So here we have an if. This is conditional. God did unconditional. Too good to be true. So Jacob comes back with a conditional. If that's true what you say, and you will keep me in this way that I go, so that I do come again to my father's house in peace. What does he say? The Lord shall be my God. If you actually pull off what you're talking about, okay, we got a deal here, right? I didn't take Esau's birthright till he sold it to me. I'm not taking your promises to the bank until I see the receipt. Please show me what you're saying. This shows you his attitude, though. He's skeptical. He knows he can be cheated. And he's good to think that, given he's on his way to Laban. So what I want to underscore here, because we're moving to look at Genesis 32. We're in, like, chapter 28. We're moving to 32, the most famous story of his life. But there's something that gets missed in this, and that is that he's wrestling with God. He's been wrestling with his brother. He's been contending with his father. He's wrestling with God at the beginning of his journey, and he thinks he might have a shot. He begins the wrestling in his life thinking, yes, I have hope. Maybe this can work out. But it began here. Now, we've Fast forward, go a couple chapters later, he's gone through with Laban. He's had a problem after problem come to him. Right? Imagine you're working seven years to have a wife only to get cheated and then work again. Not only that, but you're put in a situation where you are, in fact, having to violate what is understood to be the scriptural rules Because of the circumstances in your life, in Proverbs, the Proverbian or the the, the wisdom teacher, whoever is the one speaking towards the end of the book, he says, God, do not lead me into a situation in life where I must sin in order to survive, right? Not, Not where I'll make the mistake and I'll have to sin and I'll feel bad about it. No, 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 no. I'll have to do things I don't agree with because I don't have a choice because you didn't give me an out. We see the, the, the same kind of dilemma with Jacob because Jacob is someone who is forced to marry two sisters. And according to the book of Leviticus, no. There's two rules when it comes to polygamy. No mothers and daughters together and no sisters together. So he's having to find himself now in a situation that others might judge as outside of biblical marriage, outside of what is true and good, outside of what is acceptable. And that's going to make him feel ostracized. That's going to make him sense he's some perhaps outside the bubble. And then on top of that, he's getting cheated. He's got to cheat Laban and his uncle in order to try to get good uh, things. His wives are even cheating. They're hiding the the household idols, judge of that as you will. But the point is, over and over again, everything's struggle. So now imagine he's come to this penultimate point in his life in which God seems to be kind of far. I mean, yes, he has blessings, but imagine what it would actually feel like. It's like, yes, for every good step he takes forward that looks like the future is going to get better, He's got to take steps back because of other things that keep pushing him, right? One step forward, two steps back. And this is his story again and again. At some point through this wrestling, you're going to start to sense and question, does God care? Is he going to actually fulfill his promises? Are any of these things going to actually end up come true? And the last thing you expect, when God finally shows up to say hi It's because he's trying to kill you. (laughs) Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. This is how the story actually begins in the beginning. People rarely quote that, but it's really important. He walks in thinking hopeful Once again, another sign that maybe things are going to go good. Maybe my reunion with Esau will go good, but he's fearful. Is God going to actually lead me back to the land as promised? Are these things going to work out? I don't know. It's not exactly going the way I thought it should. And then he prays, deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, for I'm afraid He may come and kill us all. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good. He claims the promises. Claim it, proclaim it. Get murdered by it. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It is so easy to read through that jam-packed paragraph, as so many do, and not take in the shock value. Jacob has claimed the promise of God, and God, in the middle of the night, has attacked him. The word there that is wrestle, wrestle is like such a bad translation, even though it's It's hard to encapsulate. The word in Hebrew means to get dusty. It means you're fighting each other so hard, dust is throwing up everywhere. Someone's going to die, right? This would be his expectation. It's me or this guy. The word in Hebrew was translated into Greek in the Septuagint. The same word was translated into another Greek word at times to mean, to describe dragons fighting each other. Okay? In the apocryphal additions to Esther, I think it is. Uh, that, that, you know, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, um, but if you were facing uh, you know, the wrath of Daenerys' dragons, or, or think whatever crazy dragons you imagine, yeah, that you're, that's not going to fill you with hope. Right? And that's not going to be just a wrestling match. This isn't WWE. This is, you're dead, you understand me? Now, also interesting, there might be even a little bit here that is um, kind of, mm, how would you say, a little dirty trick because the the language of striking him on the, the hip, it, it could also be a reference to striking him at his most vulnerable body part. Um, so it could literally be a low blow, um, which which would just add insult to injury. But now imagine, obviously... In this story, in this story, he's wrestling till daybreak. So if it's night, he doesn't know while he's wrestling that necessarily it's God. He doesn't know who it is. So in some sense, some of the traditions of interpretation that imagine that he's perhaps wrestling with Esau, or he's perhaps, you know, as was suggested in a previous uh, sermon, he's wrestling with himself. Right? There's an essence here that psychologically is true. He's wrestling with fear itself. But as daybreak rises, something worse occurs. He sees God. It's one thing to think you're wrestling with the devil. You're wrestling with human evil. And then you see the face of God behind the devil's mask. Where's your faith? Wasn't your faith in God's goodness? Why is God rejecting, seemingly turning on everything he ever promised you? But then equally, how in the world is Jacob hanging on? How is he the one who is prevailing? Notice the man, God, the angel, we'll go through that, did not prevail against Jacob. Jacob is holding this divine figure. When he says, let me go, the day is breaking. Bro, I am done with this. You're too strong. I'm out. Jacob has a choice. Jacob can say, F you, God. After all this, and I came out the victor, forget it. It was all junk to begin with. Go, get out of my hair. I don't need you. But he doesn't. He refuses to let go. He doesn't allow the perception of God rejecting his promise, this example of a curse, to hold on to him. Instead, he just holds on. He says, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. And I can't tell you how many times people who preach on this do not notice what that might be a reference to. The fact that he had prayed, you have promised to do good for me. The fact that God made a promise that I will fulfill all that I have said by the end of this all. So even in the face of God acting like this, Jacob refuses obstinately to allow this to be the end or the turning point of that story. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven. I love that language. It should just be like some translations. You just, you have fought, but you know, striven, strove, it just doesn't sound as heretical. Um, For you have fought with God and with humans and you have prevailed. This is a paradox. Wink, wink. (laughs) You have prevailed. Prevailed. Okay, that means God didn't. This makes it one of the most strange verses in the Bible. God didn't prevail. You prevailed. But wait a second. What is he prevailing? You will be called Israel. Do you know what Israel means? It means the one who fights God. So the blessing is a name change, The name change is you have fought God, and you fight God, and now that's the name of the people, and the people fight God. Wait a second. How is the fighting God becoming the blessing? Paradox. And if the result is that he gets blessed, isn't that exactly what God already told him he was going to do? So is it actually that Jacob has, has, has prevailed? Or is it, is it God? Is it both? What's going on? The point is, Jacob doesn't let go, and God doesn't give him a neat present with a tied bow. It's messy. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. He said, why is it you ask my name? There he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. Now when we go to Hosea, Hosea tells us in the womb he tried to supplant his brother. In his manhood he strove with God, fought with God. He fought with the angel and prevailed. In, in ancient Israel, um, often it was thought that God represented himself or spoke through intermediaries that were angelic. So uh, for Hosea, it is both the case that it was physically an angel who was there in physical capacity, but it is uh, identically God. God, it's why when you hear in the Hebrew Bible, it'll say like an angel called out to Abraham and it said, I am the Lord thy God. It does not mean the angel is uh, God or God is an angel. It's the angel becomes the mouthpiece. It's like the heavenly version of what the prophets were on earth. Prophets were the heavenly mouthpiece as humans. Angels would be like heavenly mouthpieces. They'd be representatives, ambassadors. So he says, look, it's an angel, but it's God But notice what he adds. He says he wept. Jacob wept and sought his favor. He wept. It's not all just victory. Imagine the terror, the fright, everything that has led him through. What does it take for him to hold on? What does it take for him to reject everything that seems to suggest it's all screwed and say, no, I'm not willing to believe that. Job 7 says, what are human beings that you make so much of them, that you set your mind on them, visit them every morning, test them every moment? If this sounds familiar, it's because there's a psalm that goes like this. You made us just a little lower than the angels in the Septuagint, but a little lower than God in Hebrew. Here, Job seems to evoke the same idea, but he wants to mock it. He wants to get rid of it. He says, will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone until I swallow my spittle. If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of humanity? What is it to you if I sin? Why in the world do you care? Why do you punish me even if I did? Why have you made me your target? Why have I become a burden to you? That's scripture. That's in the Bible. Although you'd probably not notice it because no one ever seems to quote it. (laughs) Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Mind you, remember, Job refuses to ask for forgiveness. He keeps on telling his friends, I have nothing, I've done nothing to deserve this, so I am not going to belittle myself and go ask for forgiveness for something that I know I don't deserve. Right? So, what is he actually saying here? He's saying, look, why don't you just automatically forgive me? Why, why are we doing this game? It's not right. See, he will kill me. I have no hope, but I will defend my ways to his face. Right? Job continues. I was at ease and he broke me in two. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and shows no mercy. Mercy. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. All I want to do is get away from you somewhere. Oh, but he says, in a very amazing section of Job, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his dwelling. I would lay my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Now, judging from everything else he said, you'd think to yourself, well, man, he, he, he assumes that it all goes south, right? But no. He says, would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. He would give heed to me. And then the next verse says, he would be able to be reasoned with. There's an affirmation of faith. Amen, A- amen until you remember the end of the book. <laughs> what happened in the whirlwind? He answered him with his power. Did you make the planets? Did you make behemoth? Are you able to control that? He does everything. Job affirmed in his faith, that's not like God's character. So just like Jacob, seeing God come to attack him, Job is welcomed by a God who is indifferent to him. No matter what his internal conviction, what do you do with that? Job finally has his day in court, and God comes as the threat he feared, not as the confident blessing that he wanted. God uses, now in my book, Saying No to God, uh, there's a passage here, I'll quote, God uses his mask, this is referring to an idea that Martin Luther came up with. He, he dwelled on these stories and he said, you know, it's, it's like a test. It's like God is putting the devil's mask over his face. And he's trying to see, can I fool you? Will you believe this? In, will you just accept that this is who I am? Will everything else I ever told you go out the window? Are you going to look at me like Abraham said and say, far be it from you? Or are you going to say, man, this sounds just like you? God uses his mask to provoke us and in so doing to remind us of what we know deep down that this God doesn't want to condemn us at all, but rather desires to save us. When challenged by the devil's mask, God incites us to push back and reaffirm his true character. As we do, we ourselves are similarly challenged to change. We are transformed back into the image of God by fighting for the very things that God stands for. So then when we go back to think about Jacob, Jacob expects to wrestle with a hostile brother by the aid of divine blessing. That's what he's hoping for. Instead, a hostile God attacks Jacob before he meets a forgiving brother aided by a blessed limp. It's very easy to focus on that story and the fact that he prevails, but it also ends with the fact that he has a limp for the rest of his life. How does that factor into the blessing? How does that factor into the reconciliation between the brothers? What did Jacob need to learn through all that darkness, all that wrestling, in order to be able to have the reconciliation, to have the blessing, to be able to turn the leaf over. It's true. We don't know what we don't know until we know it. You can spend hours and and days and years studying something trying to figure out what is the trick that those people who are successful know and i haven't figured it out yet and once you figure it out it 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 all makes sense to you it's like i can't unsee it but before then you can't get it you're trying you're struggling and it feels like failure it feels like everything won't make sense I don't believe that bad things happen because God wants them to happen. I think like Joseph in Genesis 50 when he says, what you planned for evil as humans and I suffered as consequence, God has turned into something good. Like Paul affirmed, God uses all things to go towards goodness, to turn towards peace. But what can God do when we ourselves have our own struggles to deal with. Jacob's struggle with God is as much a struggle with the divine promise as it is with his own heart. That's why he's weeping. He has to go through this, not because it's somehow good or somehow we should suffer, but because there's something he needs to learn. He can learn from this experience. And perhaps the limp is symbolic of humility. He can be vulnerable. Yes, he can be victorious, but he needs to be vulnerable with his brother. How much of a limping brother coming before Esau helps Esau to feel softened in his heart? How much does having God's spirit challenge us as much as encourage us, help us to develop a better understanding of ourselves? Sometimes we have to go through the darkness not to feel content with the unknown, but in order to push us to fight for the light or even to notice where it shines. Sometimes we wrestle with God in order to gain the victorious limp that provides us with the humility needed for achieving our blessing. So we come back to the beginning, to the story. We see, know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, will bring you back. God accomplishes that promise. But now reread the last part with the whole story in your mind and think about how Jacob feels about that affirmation. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He began his wrestling thinking, yeah, God's on my side. And was he? Yes, the whole way. But did it feel like that? No. Surely God was in that dark place by the Jabbok River, and Jacob wished so hard during that battle. Why are you even here? But he held on. And if you're having your battle, if you're struggling to think of how do I keep holding on to faith, maybe you have to reconsider what you thought was faith or realize how much of a plurality of forms it can take. Because Job looks like a perfectly fine, God-hating, outside of Israel's scope individual. Put whatever anathema on him you want. But he's the one who God says is blessed. Job actually tells his friends at one point, he says, do you really think that God's going to be happy you're defending him? God cares, I know this at least, God should care more about justice so that if he is just, he'll be more happy with me speaking honestly than your platitudes, and he'll condemn you for them. What happens at the end of the book? God condemns them for it. Two affirmations that Job makes about what will happen. One of them does come true, but only after Job endures the first. You might be thinking, well, how does it work at the end? Job had the whirlwind. God seemingly was indifferent. Yes, he fixed everything. Ah, but did you miss what Job did? Job People think, everyone thinks that Job's story ends with Job saying, I am but dust and ashes. Everyone ends there. But do you notice that if that was really the key, if this was all about Job's humility, why isn't he healed right then and there? Why is he not suddenly having things fixed? They're not at all. Instead, God comes to Job and says, I'm going to murder your friends going to you know, do bad things unless you sacrifice and pray on their behalf. If you forgive them, then I'll restore divine favor to them. What does the story tell us in the epilogue? When Job prayed, everything was restored. Now, I don't know about you, Paradox, but for me, it doesn't sound like the, the issue was being in dust and ashes. It sounds like the issue was Action. Will Job still act like God taught him? Will still try to be the character that God formed in him even when it seems like the world is meaningless and God's against you and your friends abandoned you? Will you still be the person that you believed yourself to be when things were good? And he prays. He could have said, screw it. There if if God and the universe are bad, let it be. He doesn't. He holds on. And he says, I'll grant that. And in that moment, everything is recovered. There is something to be learned in all of the darkness that we experience. So let us affirm: yes, God is in this place. And it's okay, church, if if someone here or watching is, is thinking to themselves, That makes it worse. Imagining there's a divine ladder. God's right beside me, and I don't realize it. I wish he wasn't, because I don't think he's helping. The fact that you're feeling that feeling is telling you you're at the precipice of blessing. This is what will lead to your blessing. You are going to have to endure this. But the key is endurance.